Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. The Last Poets are not quite a band, maybe a collective or an idea. Let me back up. In 1968, at Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem, a group of black musicians, writers, and activists formed a group. They called it The Last Poets. They read poems, played drums, brought in other instruments later. And when they spoke, they spoke plainly. Their message was about unity, social justice, empowerment, all that was wrong with their world and what could be done to make it better. They put out their first record in 1970, a self-titled album on a small label run by the same guy who produced Jimi Hendrix and Miles Davis. It was groundbreaking. For an opportunity, an opportunity that knocks up sisters and knocks them in the head. For an opportunity that takes them home with dope in the arm and clear all on the brain. New York, New York. Over 50 years have gone by since the last poets formed. Dozens of members joined and left the group Dozens of albums were recorded. You can feel the spirit of the last poets in rap legends like Common and Public Enemy and A Tribe Called Quest. You can hear them, literally hear them, sampled in hundreds of hip-hop records by N.W.A., Biggie Smalls, Diggable Planet, Snoop, Dre, Madlib, The Coup, others. They've also served as guiding lights and mentors to generations of performance poets, especially in New York. Anyway, the last poets have a new album. It was recorded by two of the group's founding members, Abiodun Oyewole and Umar Ben Hassan, who are my guests. The record is called Transcending Toxic Times. It's out now. Let's take a listen to a track off of it. This one's called For the Millions. Abiyodun, Umar, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Can maybe each of you tell me how you first came across poetry, like how poetry first entered your life? Well, for me, poetry entered my life because I happened to like young ladies. And I thought that it would be a real sophisticated move if I were to give them poetry instead of trying to come up with a little five-cent rap real quick. So I was writing, po- I mean, I wasn't writing po- a lot of poetry, but I did write a serious poem that caused me to th- take poetry seriously when I was in high school. My teacher had a tendency to give up about, you know, 10 words a week, and, and she would always say the same thing. Look up these words and put them in a composition. Well, I know that the word composition encompasses a great many things. So I looked at Miss Carpenter, my high school English teacher, and I said, Miss Carpenter, if I put these words in a poem, um, can I get extra credit? And she says, and she looked at the list and, and said, if you could put these words in a cohesive, and I'll never forget her saying that, in a cohesive poem, I will give you two extra credits. 
So I took my relationship to the paper. I was having a relationship with a young lady who was like 19 years old. She was going to Fordham University. I'm a 15-year-old guy in high school, and I lied to her until I was older because I knew she couldn't tell her first she was going up with some 15-year-old kid. So I wrote this poem about our crumbling relationship, and um, I gave it, handed it in to my teacher, and Miss Carpenter, she read the poem, and she says, you know what? I don't know what you're going to do with this, but you're a poet. You're a natural poet. And, hey, it's something at your disposal. And that was it. I was not thinking I was seriously going to become a poet. I was just very happy to know that that was another one of the skills that I had attained. What did the girl think of it? Um, <laughs> this is very sad. I, I don't think I even shared the poem with the girl, but... Miss Carpenter put the poem in the contest and won first prize. What happened is what curtailed our relationship. I was so proud of Esther. She was so fine. I took over a friend of mine's house, you know, to show off because he was older than me and I wanted to see this gorgeous girl I had. And after the visit was over, he put me and says, listen, he says, yo, Chucky, why, why you lie to her? You told her you're like 18 years old. You know, you're only 15. I, he says, if you really like her and she seems to really like you, tell her the truth. And I'm thinking to myself, Charlie's crazy. I can't tell her you're like 15 years old. So anyway, I said, okay, I tried that. So I actually, um, I took her to Hawaii Kai, which is a known place here in New York City for romance and all that kind of stupidness. I took her to a movie. I tried to do the whole nine and make it a lovely evening in New York City. I walked her into her building, into the lobby, up on Fordham Road, and I said, Esther, you know, I have something I want to tell you, and I, I'm sorry to tell you before now, but I just want to get this clear because I really like you, blah, 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 blah. And she said, what is it? I said, I'm only 15. She screamed and ran upstairs. <laughs> and she shut the door, and that was the end of my relationship with Esther. You know, my, I should say clearly, that was the end of my relationship with Esther because that summer, a good friend of mine told me that he saw my man Charlie going out with Esther. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, uh, my introduction to poetry wasn't that elaborate or sophisticated. I was a shoeshine boy on, you know, on the street of of gay and pimps and everything else called Howard Street. And I had competition uh, by the name of Mitchell Lindsay. Now, I just signed shoes, but Mitchell Lindsay, he sold the Jet magazine, he sold the <laughs> Black Neighborhood magazine, and he signed shoes. So he was really, like, he was, he was ridiculous as far as custom because he was even beginning to take some of my customers. So I had to find a way to, you know, try to get, you know, all that back. So I just happened to start saying on things like... I. Pop that rag, I click that brush, a dime and a nickel ain't too much. Shoe shine, shoe shine, can't be beat. Shoe shine, shoe shine, give your soul a treat. So everybody said, whoa, listen, whoa, he got some game. He know how to use the word. And it was the women, basically, who picked it up first, like the ladies of the night and the barmaids. They liked it, so they'd be telling, you know, their pimps and their boyfriend, you got him them shine, so he's a little poor. But that's, you know, how I came into poetry. And then in, through junior high school, I'll be writing little things, little limericks, you know, for girls and you know, for friends of mine. 
And but in uh, high school, my senior class day, I wrote a poem about all my <laughs> teachers <laughs> and the principals and the ex principal who I didn't like. And I know especially the ex principal and the principal they didn't like me. Anyway, I was getting thrown out of school almost every week. But they came up and said, "I knew, yeah, we know you had it. We know you had. It. We know you had." It. I said, "Yeah, right, man." But that's how I got into uh, writing poetry. When did each of you think of yourselves as a poet? That seems like a big step forward from writing a poem for English class or writing some patter so that you can get an extra nickel on your shoeshine tip. Well, I want to speak on that first because it's very important that, you know, when I went through my little hustle thing, you know, all up into high school and wherever else, and I finally came into this thing called the, the Black Revolution and Nationhood, you know, I, I um, joined a certain group in Cleveland by a brother by the name of... Um, Ahmed Evans, he told us that when the revolution came, he was going to be over the top of roofs in Cleveland, Ohio, shooting police. And he was. He killed three of them. But uh, so one day I'm head of this uh, security thing or at the show Antioch College. And Abby O'Doon and the, so the original poet showed up. I think it was him, Guyland came and Felipe. So I got in and I watched them and what they did with poetry. I mean, the amazing things they did with poetry from, you know, Dune and then over to Felipe and Guyland Kane. It just blew my mind. So automatically I said, well, I got to get to New York and become a last poet. So because I, I told him, I said, listen, man, I'm going to be coming. You know, I'm going to be coming up to New York. He said, well, OK, you know, if you come, just come and let me know that you're coming. But, you know, like I say, my uh, activities at that time got me fired from my job at um at Firestone, Tire and Rubber, you know, because I lived in Akron, Ohio, the so-called rubber capital of the world. And also doing a little thing on, on, on Rooster Avenue, another street where all the players hung out. We had a little riot, and the Akron Beacon Journal caught a picture of me with the National Guardsman with the gun and his rifle in my back and my hands in the air. My mother said, oh, God, of all the they had to catch with a, a rifle in your back. They had to catch you. So it became known that I had to get out of Akron. So I left Akron, but I didn't have no money. I didn't have no job. How am I going to get out of Akron? So I pawned my sister's record player back in the day. She had one of those little record players. Remember little 33 records would drop down one after another? So I, I pawned that, and I got $25. It cost me $15 for a ticket to get to New York. Now, when I got to Pittsburgh halfway, I had nine, I had $10 left. So I bought me some food for $9.80, what was $9.78. So when I got through... In New York, I wound up with some poetry in my bag and 22 cent in my, in my pocket on 8th Avenue. But then Dune, I went looking for Dune, and I found him. You know, I, I went to the loft, and he found him. He hooked me up for some place to stay, but that's how I became in, a last poet or interested in doing poetry further. You know, even though uh, I helped start the group uh, in May 19, 1968, I'll be very honest. I never really felt like I was a worthy poet until, say, many years later, because we know, both Umar and I both know some outstanding poets, yes, and, and uh, we had the pleasure of being in their circle. I mean, I couldn't touch Aski Maimatore. I couldn't touch Guylin Kane, who was in The Last Poets. I mean, he was the one who gave us our aesthetic. And I, I, mean, I knew what poetry was, and I was learning. I was an avid student of the word. I, did, I, won't, I don't think I can say I was really a poet until maybe about, oh, I mean, some, some years later. I, I think really for the most part, in the beginning, I kind of was 
posturing as a poet mm. and and hoping that people that that could because the main thing for me the poetry led me into the movement mm. just like Umar wanted to be involved with this movement because see we were all hurt by the killing of Dr. King and so there was only one thing to do and black power made a lot of sense so there was a black power movement that I really wanted to be a part of by any means necessary poetry was my vehicle and see, uh, another thing, too, that inspired me to want to be poor, there was a brother by the name of Mir Baraka, or at that time, Leroy um, Jones. Because in Akron, Ohio, one day when I was getting dressed to hang out with my boys, you know, we had on our beaver skins and our Botany 500s and our gators and lizards, and we're getting ready to go out. And I'm reading this magazine, this Time magazine. And he said, you know, my partner said, you know, Hank, you always reading. Why are you always reading, man? So I can tell you dumb people what's going on in the world. That's why I read. But I come to this one page, and the Newark riots were going on at that time, the Newark riots. And they came, there was this picture of a Mary Baraka standing in front of this burnt-out uh, Volkswagen and burnt-out buildings behind him. And under the caption of that picture, under the, the caption of that picture read, smash those jelly white faces. So after I get in the car and we go into the Vanessa Club where, you know, we was going to party and hang out with the ladies or whatever, I'm watching all these pass, cars pass me with white people in them. And I'm seeing jelly white faces. I said, God, he was... He was right. I said, I really got to meet him. And so when I finally got to New York and I met him, he just, the memory rocker overwhelmed me. He was, I consider him my father of poetry, like other young black poets do. But he was all that there was to me. And plus that, when you really got past all his intellectualism or his poetry, he was just one original down stud from Newark, New Jersey. And I, I miss him a lot. I miss it that he's not in our presence at this time. The fact is that Emiri Baraka was a very close brother to all of us because he was the mentor for The Last Poets. We'll wrap up with The Last Poets after a quick break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is made possible by Airbnb Experiences, who wants you to get out of your comfort zone. Sword fight with a real samurai. Repel into a private slot canyon. Learn the Hollywood art of sound effects. Airbnb experiences are one-of-a-kind activities hosted by passionate locals in more than 1,000 cities, all vetted for quality and created for the curious. That's you. So put down your phone, get out there, and do something new. Check out airbnb.com experiences to learn more. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks. Every week, myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. 
hey, it's Guy Raz, creator of How I Built This. And we're returning to San Francisco for the second How I Built This Summit, supported by American Express. I'll be joined there by founders of companies like Instagram, Slack, Away, Bliss, JetBlue, and many, many more. Visit summit.npr.org to learn more, and I hope to see you there. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. My guests are Abiodun Oyewole and Umar Ben Hassan. They co-founded The Last Poets, a collective of poets and musicians that inspired generations of hip-hoppers and spoken word performers. Their new album, Transcending Toxic Times, is out now. Abiodun, why was The Last Poets a group? The Last Poets were a group because of a brother named David Nelson. David Nelson, whose name at the time was David, he had an anti-poverty program in East Harlem. And we used to share little poetic ideas. He was even writing poetry in Spanish. I think I even tried my hand at writing something in French. So we were being cute with the word. And I remember one day David said to me, um, you know, I wanna I wanna do a get a collective of men together and have have us present as a group. Maybe that'll give black people a good example on how important it is for us to be unified. So I heard him, the ideas sound good, but I also was beginning to understand most poets ride solo. Yeah. They don't hang they out really do. in groups. You know, they're like the Lone Ranger or something. And so, I, but I heard what David was saying, because David wants the whole world to grab hands and just love each other and, and hold on. The fact of the matter is, I revisited what he had to say after April 4th, 1968. When they shot down Martin Luther King, I lost it. I saw no more compromising, negotiating, or sitting at the round table. I saw blood. And I I knew I was going to do something very stupid, like get a gun and maybe become a serial killer and uh, just do something real crazy because I was feeling like here's this man everybody on the planet knows. He was marching with peace in his heart and mind. He had no gun. He wasn't offering up any real physical violent threats. I mean, it was all about peace and love. And then he gets shot down on the balcony of a, of a motel in Memphis. I couldn't believe it. I was so hurt. So I called David and I said, David, if you don't get this group together that you had this idea of over a year ago, I'm going to become a, a serial killer. So he said, well, I just, I'll, I'll put your name, my name, and this other guy I met at Columbia University, his name is Garlin Kane. I'm going to put our names on a list to perform poetry together as a group on May 19, 1968. So I said, okay. So I waited around, but when he told me I was happy, it looked like I was going to have an inroad to this whole world of poetry and black people and everything. But at the same time, I was totally intimidated because Harlem is no joke. And I was afraid. If I got put on that stage and said something that didn't really work, it was going to be like being at the Apollo on amateur night. The Sandman was going to come out and snatch me off the stage and people would say, <laughs> boo. And so I was really a bit intimidated. But I quelled that, and I still use this method today. I came to Harlem every day, and I would just simply walk around and observe and listen. And, you know, the poetry comes from the people you're trying to reach. Yes, it does. And, and so yes, it does. I, I had a chance to really hear what we were saying to each other. 
and I was checking out mannerisms. Poets have to really be students of the people they love. There's no question about that. Right on. And and so I I studied, and it was so interesting because much about music kind of mirrors what we're doing in our lives. And the hit song at that time was a song by the Ozzy Brothers. It's your thing, and do what you want to do. And black folks were walking up to each other. Brothers say to one another, brother, yo, brother, what's your thing, man? What's your thing? They say, oh, I'm in the Black Panthers. And the other guy might come to somebody else's later on and say, yo, man, what's your thing, man? Oh, I'm in the Nation of Islam. So I'm beginning to recognize this thing is like a revolutionary pronoun. And everybody wants to know, everybody wants to know what your affiliation is with the movement. And so I wrote a poem that said, what is your thing, brother? Is it a black thing? Will it save black women and children? Will it build a black nation? All I did was take what I heard and I brought it, gave it right back to the people. That's how real poetry is done. Poets sing, uh, we recreate the wheel. The wheel has already been created. We just want to show you how to roll with that bad boy. And that's basically it. It's a, if you know, if you're really into poetry, you're into the essence of life, because it's it's all it's it's a wonderful, wonderful vehicle to take you places that you may not go. Let's take a listen to my guests, the last poets from their first record in 1970, with "When the Revolution Comes." When the revolution comes. When the revolution comes. I hope curly white teeth fall out the mouths that speak of revolution without reference. The course of revolution is 360 degrees. Understand the cycle that never ends. Understand the beginning to be the end, and nothing is in between but space and time that I make or you make to relate or not to relate to the world outside my mind, your mind. Speak not of revolution until you are willing to eat rats to survive. When the revolution comes. Did you think about the revolution in literal terms at that time? I was thinking about the revolution in terms of what the revolution really is all about. All of us were. Change. All we of us were. a change. All of us did. And, and, and the change had to be serious. And sometimes that change is good, good, bloody. We weren't advertising the blood, but we knew that we had to have a complete change. If you check out much of the last poet's early poetry, we were always trying to offer something that was better than what we were dealing with. The lifestyle that we were forced to deal with and be oppressed by, uh, even with your pet animals go through. So change was at the forefront of everything. And revolution and change happened to be synonymous. Did that feeling change in you after Dr. King was killed. Was that Absolutely. something that was Absolutely, yes. I was going to be a nice colored guy. I was going to be one of those Ben Carson type of people. Be nice, share your talents, your gifts, and your skills, and shut the hell up. No. But they killed Dr. King. I said, all bets are off. You know, because the other thing, too, in order to be a poet, it's very, it's got to understand, this is something that you can't prescribe. You got to have this. You got to have a lot of feeling. You got to have some passion for your people. If you don't have any passion, leave this area alone. And, you know, uh, during that time, you know, people in the street, young men like me in the street, 
that there was a seething fire inside of us. We wanted to do more. Some of us wanted to burn things down. Some of us wanted to, to build things. So, so the time was right for a group for the last poets to come in. Young black men speaking the truth with poetry. And see, that's what, oh, that's what made us so appropriate at the time. There were people waiting on us. We didn't know that they were waiting on us. But when we got out there, the poetry that we were doing appealed them so much. Okay, wow, man, you got to hear the last poets. You got to go with this album, man, because then everybody was buying an album. White people, too, were buying it and listening to us. God, this guy's a different, man. They're speaking what we're living. They're speaking what we're going through. So, oh, so next thing you know, we were just um, put on this this pedestal somewhat. And, this, you know, we became, and we we were young men. We were young men. We were all going through changes sometimes with ourselves, and we went through some changes with each other. But the fact that we were black men trying to do something together to show that certain black men could work together, that could accomplish some things, that's what kept us going. And that's what has kept us going, men doing now, kept us going after 50 years of this, you know. <laughs> sometimes we don't like each other. Sometimes I don't like him. Sometimes he doesn't like me. But the fact that we can show two black men who, in spite of our differences and whatever we go through, is that we still can get on stage and work together as two black men. That's been important for a lot of people, which has also been important to us. You've mentioned a few times uh, your late colleague, Jalal. Jalal had a very different style than the two of you. Jalal? Oh, yes. That's what made the group special. You know, I mean, it's like, if you got a sirloin steak over here and some filet mar over here, maybe you got some salmon over here. The bottom line is that each one of us represents a different portion of what life has to offer. But the thing that made us really super special, I think, is that we were thorough in what we represented. We weren't half of it. We didn't do nothing halfway. We were complete. Uh, you could take groups apart and look at each individual in the group. Like, I'm sure that they're probably doing that with the Temptations. The Temptations, I'm sure, got some major stories because they were a major group. But no one can touch the last poets because we went into the guts, into the entrails of the society from a whole different perspective. We weren't trying to sing you love love poems, uh, love songs, and have you go home and just sleep like a bird. No, we wanted to wake you up, but up. And we were serious about waking you up and keeping you awake. Let's hear the last poets from 1971 from the record This Is Madness. This is related to what? What an ICBM, IBM, and all of the five billion dollar ABM system. A attack B, black MN system, attack black men system, system attacks black men. My black women are allowed to walk around with mini skirts on their mind, drinking birth control pills from peace, sweetened Kool Aid, and digging on Tom Jones because it's not unusual. Related to what? You know, we were some brilliant motherfuckers. Excuse my language, but like here, we just young black men, and we, like Dune says, where was this stuff coming from? Wow, you know, who blessed us and endowed us with all these images in this world? Because, you know, young men, because I was like 21 at that time, you know, really, and, and, and these images and stuff. So we, 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 but we love doing what we're doing, man, and we just, the more it seemed like people or those who didn't like us pushed against us, the stronger that we, we became you know the stronger what, it, we became it, you know what i'm hearing i'm hearing a total commitment we weren't no joke I'm, I'm i'm telling you those guys back then i'm scared of them i mean that was ooh, that's nothing but fire you know but that fire can only exist because you really meant it 
We weren't playing. We weren't. We were not playing. We were not playing. We were not playing. And we, and we really felt, for some reason, man, we decided to really make our mouths guns. And we said, every word that pops out is going to be a bullet. And we weren't kidding. And, I mean, I am so proud of our intent and our intensity and our passion because you can't get to this level. This is nothing that anybody, you can't go to no poetic school and learn how to do this. This has got to be in your heart. And another important aspect of us that, you know, everybody, if you had a new poem, you had to let everybody hear that new poem because everybody had a chance to, you know, give you some insight of what you shouldn't say or what you're saying. Or, so we worked together like doctors and exactly, like scientists exactly. on these poems. We just didn't write them and put them out there. We all had to had say, okay, okay, you're doing, you read my poem. And, okay, Jalal, let's read what you're doing. And, and you know, everybody had this new poem. And we just, we, we, uh, we took care of each other's spirituality, each other's creativity, and each other's soul. We looked out for one another more than anything. But that's the basic thing that has kept us together, the fact that we looked out at each other. And we're still doing that now at our ages. We're still looking out for each other. You know, I, I, I look at uh, young people when they're trying to go to school. If they could just take what Umar said as a kind of a prototype of how they could get through, man, life would be much easier if you've got some brothers of like mind that you could sit and share your ideas with, man, we could probably recreate pyramids overnight. My dad was an organizer in the 60s and 70s, and throughout his life, but specifically in the 60s and 70s. He told me the story one time that, I mean, I guess it would have been the late 60s that they had an office in Oakland. And when they moved into this office in Oakland, uh, the FBI rented an office that was directly across the street with a window that looked into their window. Uh-huh. And there was a couple of FBI agents who would just sit there in the window <laughs> with with uh, binoculars. <laughs> oh, boy. Like, within, in plain sight, like, not, not fooling anyone. And uh, my dad used to say, like, you know, we just wave and smile. Uh-huh. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> That was nice and easy. We met our agents. Yep. They came up and induced themselves to us, you know, just off the hand, letting us know, okay, we're watching. We're here. We're watching you guys. And we're like, all right, what's up? You know, we cool. Uh, us, you know, so what? We ain't stopping, and y'all ain't scared of nobody. So we, you know, there was, because, you know, because we would, we would pick up the phone, man, and I'd pick up the phone, and somebody would say, well, Ma, uh, uh, this is mad that you performed the night. It was wonderful. I really dug it. And then we hang up the phone. So it's like we knew they were there, man. But what we going to do? Get all scared now and just tighten up and lock ourselves in the bathroom <laughs> and say, okay, it's over. We kept rolling. We had to keep rolling. Who else was going to do it? <laughs> you know, it was so funny. When I met my agent, uh, he told me, he says, I was assigned to you in 1968. And I really got a charge out of that because I'm saying, assigned to me? I said, I'm just a poet. He said, yeah, well... He said, you say some rather subversive things. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out what he meant. So I said, and so, so, and of course, when you look at, up the definition, subversive, meaning having intent to overthrow the government. Okay. I guess I have an intent to overthrow the government. I, <laughs> the bottom line is that I think a lot of people would join that bandwagon considering that we got this orange clown who is making mistakes overtime every single and you know what and I'm getting sick and tired of getting up in the morning to find what the weather is and 
what the day's gonna be like, and I gotta hear all this Trump stuff. It is, it is, un, it's a very sad and tragic circus. And it's toxic. It, it's totally toxic, and nobody needs that in their diet. I mean, life should not be that difficult. And this character is killing us. I stopped watching TV two months ago, and I was a big TV. Everybody knew that my daughters and my wives, he watched all he wanted. But I stopped watching TV because I've I been mean, getting up every morning and listening to that and then listening to some of his spoilers, the lies they were telling, and look at the congressmen who were playing games and trying to erect this new God figure for America. I just, I don't watch TV no more. I just, it's, it's just, but I, look, I, I want to make it clear. You know, I'm an American. I was born here. This is my country. There's nothing or no way where I want to destroy it just to be destroying it. What the last poets have uh, put themselves out there, we just want people to deal with the truth, to understand that we're all the human beings, no matter what color, no matter what transgender, what sexual preference, we're all the human beings. And, you know, all the changes that I've been through lately in these last 20 years, you know, my drug problems and this and that, you know, I've come to find out that being a human being, there's only three things and that I want and what other human beings say, is that we want to be loved, Love, we want to be respected, respect, and we want to be appreciated. appreciated. And that's very simple to do. But first of all, you got to learn how to love, respect, and appreciate yourself before you try to inculcate it in somebody else. But, you know, the thing I, I, I'm so happy about, I'm happy about these young kids, these young people in America, the young ones, the black ones, the, the, the white ones, they're going to make some changes. Here. My little granddaughter was with me this Sunday, and uh, we went over to the harbor in Baltimore, and she just did some things, some actions to show me that, you know, the young people, they're, they're not going to allow this to happen. They're not going to allow this to keep happening. They're not going to allow people like Trump to keep running this BS and the Congress because they want to change. They want change. They don't need this silly racism and the silly anti-whatever stuff. They really want to change. And I know they're going to be. Now there's going to be some change in there. So I, I'm very hopeful. I'm not sad or disappointed. Or and I'm very hopeful. And I, I know it's going to come, you know, because it just has to come. Abiodun, do you still host regular open houses for poets where you live? Every Sunday. My mother thinks I'm crazy. Yes, I do this every Sunday. I just went shopping today <laughs> for Sunday. Please, <laughs> don't even mention it. My back is still hurting. I, I mean, I got too many things, but I'm dedicated to that. That's the one thing I will try to always maintain. I, I don't want to be one of those ragamuffin type of brothers. I want to be known as this brother who is consistent. And I think that was one of the main reasons why Umar sought me out to re- just get this group back together. Because he knew that if I said yes, that I was going to be committed to it. And I have been. And we've had our changes, our ups and downs, and our not good feeling days about each other, about ourselves. But we have continued to ride this horse. I mean, it's amazing that the horse is still standing. But the fact is that we've done a super job. And I would not want to be all of the places I've been in the world with anybody else because Umar and Abiy Odun are totally different, but at the same time, we are the same. Abiy Odun, I heard that there is like a an invocation, a pledge at every one of those open houses. Matter of fact, the pledge is all over the world and it's real special. You want me to do it now? Please. I want to be what I can be 
to be proud, healthy and free. Want to say what I know to help my brothers and sisters grow. I want to feel good about me and blame no one for my misery. Cause I'll be strong, turn it around. I want to go up, I'm not going down. I want to do what I can do. To make all my dreams come true. Remember my past, good and bad. How I made it art, even when it was sad. I want to share whatever my gift. And when you're feeling low, I'll give you a lift. I want to live without fear. And know that I'm blessed for being here. And know that you're blessed for being. And know that I'm blessed for being here. Know that we're blessed for being here. I know that you're blessed. Well, Umar and Abiyodun, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was so well, nice well, to get to talk you, to you. thank you, Matt, for inviting us. Because this is big time. NPR, radio, we never thought we'd make this, you know, situation. But it's, uh, we're glad we came, man. We're glad we're still here to be able to be on International Public Radio. Thanks a lot, man. We appreciate you. Thank you, gentlemen. Take care Thank yourself. you. Umar bin Hassan and Abiodun Oyewale of The Last Poets. Actual, genuine legends. Their new album is called Transcending Toxic Times. It's out now. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where a, I guess, dock? There's these floating barge boat dock things got loose in the lake, kind of floated around. Some birds stood on it. At one point, somebody threw a green bag on it. When would it return to its mooring? Today. As it turns out, it it returned to its mooring earlier today. But big excitement around here. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He writes our MacArthur Park updates, in case you're wondering who to blame. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. To be fair, if I had written that one, it just would have been about how a family of three ducks was crossing Wilshire Boulevard the other day when I was coming to park my car. But everybody stopped for the ducks. Make way for ducks, that's what I say. Our interstitial music is by DJW, the great Dan Wally. Thanks for sharing it with us, Dan. Dan just sent me a thumb drive full of new music, and he sent it in a greeting card with a bunch of yellow sunflowers on it, so I thought that was very sweet of him. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And before you go, uh, there are decades of this show online, or at least almost decades, more than a decade. Uh, they're all at MaximumFun.org. If you click on Bullseye, you can page through them or, or search for a name you're looking for. Uh, you, can also find, you can also find them in your favorite podcast app or on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Uh, you can check in with us there, too. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.